You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 25th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On today's show, more violence in Pakistan as the country heads to the polls. The nation is on a knife edge and the election could go either way. My guests, Juliet Foster and Mary Dijewski, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including EU trade negotiations with the US. Jean-Claude Juncker is in Washington to try and solve the escalating trade row. We'll look at Russia's attitude to Sweden and Finland and their relationship with NATO and... We live in a very fast-paced world and I have um, very formidable competitors. Some of Ivanka Trump's formidable competitors are beyond the fashion world, campaigners who are claiming victory as she announces the closure of her fashion label. That's all to come right here on Midori House with me, Georgina Godwin. Hello and welcome to Midori House. Welcome too to Juliet Foster, journalist and broadcaster, and Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian. So let's start in Pakistan. Since it was partitioned from India in 1947, there's only been one occasion when a civilian government has served a full term and then passed power onto another civilian government. However, as Pakistan goes to the polls today, this will become the second time that's happened. Although not everyone would agree that it's entirely accurate and there are allegations that the military are interfering in this election, which is one reason why the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan questions the legitimacy of these polls. Now, the campaign, which pits Nawaz Sharif of the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz PMLN, against the Oxford-educated former international cricketer Imran Khan, that's of the Pakistan Tariki Insaf PTI party, has been marred by violence, some of which has been uh, blamed on Islamic State. Uh, Sharif is now in prison, campaigning from behind bars. He says there's been a targeted crackdown by the security establishment with help from a politicised judicial system. So, Mary, this violence, what do we know? IS has claimed responsibility for some of it. I think that it's actually very, very difficult to tell because everything seems to do with this election, aside from, as it were, the good news that we may be looking at the second time um, power has transferred from a civilian government to another civilian government through an election. Um, Other than that, this seems to have been a very disorderly campaign um, marred by a huge amount of violence. I mean, I think that it's been said that it's been one of the most violent campaigns. And of course, in the background to all that has been the killings of um, opposition bloggers. Um, and it just seems that although you know, IS may be responsible in some shape or form for some of that violence, um, that actually there's much more violence that's just endemic from all sides. Yeah. Well, Juliet, 370,000 soldiers have been deployed. I mean, that's more than the British and German armed forces combined. The security services say that that's to prevent yet more violence. 
But is it really a reminder to voters that the army now supports Imran Khan? Well, that's certainly the view of uh, Nawaz Sharif's party because uh, they feel that even though the army claims to be taking a back seat on this and simply standing by watching events happen, that that is very dishonest because there have been some very compelling anecdotal stories emerging, uh, certainly in the media, that, for example, there have been journalists who claim that they have been threatened to um, hold back, if you like, from reporting negatively um, on Mr. Sh- Sh- uh, Nawaz Sharif's campaign, etc., also claims that uh, people have been threatened, forced into voting in a particular way. It's interesting as well that uh, some references were made a few moments ago to uh, social media, that yes, you're absolutely correct, Mary, that bloggers have been attacked, some indeed have disappeared. But um, it does appear that if you feel that um, Pakistan's media has lost its integrity because people have been uh, coerced into reporting events in a different way, then again, this shows the power of social media, that it is beyond anybody's control as such. So therefore, you do have an element of freedom and some people feel perhaps that they can't be intimidated, won't be intimidated into reporting a narrative that feeds into into what the military wants. But what is so fascinating as well is that there are certain areas of the country where um, Imran Khan is having to push very, very hard. It's traditional Nawaz Sharif territory. The question is, which way will people vote? Would it tip in his direction? And he's very confident of winning. Remember, this isn't the first time that he has stood in the elections. He's always been a rather charismatic figure because of his history as um, a a cricketer, etc. But he's never really had that much of an impact. But he's confident that this could now be his time. He, of course, has denied that uh, the military has been interfering. His his, um, rivals would say, well, you know, of course he would say that. But the fact that, um, that, that there seems to be a bit of a tilt towards him, considering he was a rank outsider in previous contests, that uh, that effectively makes him a stooge. What I find fascinating is that if the final result, and you're absolutely correct, we should know tomorrow, does show that both sides are level pegging, it's possible that um, the son of Benazir Bhutto, who is, who is leading the Pakistan People's Party, he could be the kingmaker, even though Imran Khan has said that he wouldn't go in either with him or indeed with um, Nawaz Sharif. But then on the other hand, he may have to forge or cut deals with um, other candidates, some of whom, shall we say, are unacceptable to the West mm. because uh, they they have, um, should we say, a rather violent past, violent associations with them. And that, that opens up another potential there that if um, whoever wins, if they then end up having to cut deals with some of these individuals, where does that leave the United States? Because, of course, they've always pointed the finger at Pakistan as not doing enough to contain terrorist outfits based in the country. And I'd like to examine that a little bit more. But first, can we just talk about Nawaz Sharif, who is campaigning mm-hmm from behind yes. bars. <laughs> Mary, do you think that he is a victim of a conspiracy or is he guilty as charged? I mean, it was all laid out in the Panama Papers. Exactly. Well, I mean, again, it's so difficult to tell um, because so often, I mean, not just in Pakistan, but in all sorts of other countries, um, corruption is used politically mm. um, so that it's it's extremely difficult to divine whether, you know, Surely there is corruption at all sorts of levels and it would be very surprising if if he weren't tainted in that way. Nonetheless, the way it came out and the way it's been used makes it political. Um, so I think that um, while saying all that and saying that you know there's so much bad news about this election, um, the clamp down, the extent of army presence, the, um, the killings or the violence, all those sort of things, but... 
At the same time, what we have is an election that's being held where we actually... We really, really don't know the result. Mm. Um, and yes, as uh, uh, as Juliet has said, I mean, there's three main candidates. Um, and it looks, especially from the coverage, um, it has to be said too, I think um, the coverage in Britain as well as um, in Pakistan has given the very strong impression that Imran Khan is really home and dried. But Maybe he isn't. Um, maybe there's more uncertainty there and the actual complexion of any government that he may be able to form. So while there's all these sort of adverse circumstances, nonetheless, the idea that um, Pakistan will have a new government and you know, it's true that any government in Pakistan is likely to be able to rule only at the behest of the military. The military is always there. Um, nonetheless, we have a, an enormous electorate that has gone out to vote today mm. and we don't actually really know for certain what the, ele- what the result's going to be. Mm. Uh, Julia, you pointed out that, of course, Khan has been active in politics for 20 years, but Absolutely. he's never actually held office. And I wonder if his very inexperience is the reason that he has the backing of the military. Could it be that the military wants an inherently unstable government so that the intelligence service, the ISI, sets foreign and indeed domestic policy? And that, that is a very interesting point because, look, I mean, he'd be up against um, Nawaz Sharif, who's, who's quite an experienced, wily character. Of course, you've got um, the other main, the other key player in this, because um, there are three main main candidates, but this is the son of Benazir Bhutto. But remember that um, he's 29 years old, he's unblooded, but you could argue that he's controlled by his father. And um, so, so it's 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 almost like the well, I wouldn't go so far as to say the ventriloquist dummy, but you've got the boy at the front, and he's being steered by the father behind. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yes, he's a he's a, that makes that makes uh, Imran Khan a more attractive candidate from uh, the the army's perspective, which would be interesting if he did win, because he has said he's campaigned on um, an anti-corruption ticket. And obviously this has played very, very well with with those who feel that uh, perhaps the the corruption has, has stripped Pakistan of its potential. But again, we should always remember that the army isn't just the army. It's also quite entangled in other areas of life business life, perhaps some of those very areas which um, Mr. Khan himself would actually would, would actually wish to, to confront. But it's an interesting point that you make that perhaps it would make him a little bit more malleable because he himself has said that if you want, if you want to go into Pakistani politics, it can be quite dangerous that um, threats have been made on his life. And don't forget, of course, that Benazir Bhutto herself was assassinated. Her father was killed. He, he was, she, he was, he was um, killed on the orders of... Um, General Zia, I think it it was, and General Zia himself died in what some would regard as very mysterious circumstances. But I'd also like to pick up on a point that um, I think it was Mary who raised this. It's, it's basically the tone of this election because, yes, there are concerns about it, about the integrity of it, given the allegations of intimidation. But what, all, what also makes it very fascinating is the sense of inclusiveness. Let's not forget that there are women who are not just voting, but also standing as candidates. Mm-hmm. And again, for some women, particularly in districts where um, women have the vote, but they've been afraid to use it because they've been threatened, some are actually defying that to go out to vote. Also, as well, there are transgender candidates as well, openly transgender candidates who are standing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, it is a fascinating election on, on a number of levels, but I think it's the inclusiveness of, as well, 
which makes it stand out. Mm. I think I'd just like to go back to it for a second um, to the question of Imran Khan and how far he actually might be malleable by the military because obviously he appears um, an unpractised politician in office but I wonder whether that may be just underestimating him mm. a little bit um, because he's been around in politics and he's had these ambitions for a very long time um, and we've seen in although this is obviously you know completely different context but we've seen how somebody coming from as it were the inside of the outside like Macron in France mm. they come with a very clear idea of what they want and how to try and do mm. it mm. and it just may be that he won't be quite as mad or that he will be able to to use the military rather than having them use him mm. so I think you know if he does win and if he gets a plausible government then it will be maybe more interesting um, to watch than we maybe think now. Mm. And, and of course it's hugely regionally important. It sits between Afghanistan, Iran and India. It has a big Taliban problem. And if there is to be peace with the Taliban, that's something that's going to have to be addressed right away, Juliet. Yes, of course, because he has actually criticised the Americans as well for using drones in certain parts of, of Afghanistan because of the, the casualties involved in that. So again, it'll be interesting to see how he how he, he squares that with Donald Trump. So you can't really get away from Donald Trump, well, can let's, we? Let's bring him up again because, of course, the, the, US, the US suspended aid from Pakistan and they responded, Pakistan responded by saying that they would turn to China instead. So, yeah. Mary, this is a dangerous strategy, surely, effectively playing China and the US off against one another. Well, it is a dangerous strategy and you could say that it's particularly dangerous at the moment because of the immense tensions that there are between China and the United States and because of the unpredictability as we've seen over the last 18 months um, with Donald Trump in the White House. Um, nonetheless, um, the sort of alignment um, between China and Pakistan is not something new. Mm. This has been around for quite a long time and it's been around long enough um, both for, for the two parties to sort of get used to it but also for everybody on both sides, for the Americans um, and also for India and for Afghanistan, um, this is this is an alignment that's a known quantity in the region. But I guess you could say that it, it perhaps really tightens the bond as well, because again, the Chinese there's locked in this trade war with Donald Trump, a trade war which I guess that they hadn't been looking for. And I guess that you could argue that um, again with with this this tilt, this strengthened this strengthened relationship with China and Pakistan, and the accusations that the Americans have made against the Pakistanis that they're not doing enough to actually fight terrorism mm. on their own soil, that again, it's it's another way of, I guess, winding up Mr Trump, but to see just how far he'll go on this one. As you're determined to talk about Mr Trump, <laughs> let's, now, let's now move to Washington because uh, Jean-Claude Juncker is in the White House today. Uh, he's meeting Donald Trump as the US and European Union attempt to find a solution before an all-out trade war breaks out. Uh, the US and European Commission presidents will discuss the implementation of 20% tariffs on EU steel and aluminium last month, and also Mr Trump's threats to expand those measures to European cars. The EU's threatened to introduce tariffs on $20 billion worth of US goods if Washington imposes new levies on car imports. So Trump's accused the EU of unfair trade practices and he used his fa 
favourite communication method, Twitter, to say, I have an idea for them. Both the US and the EU <laughs> drop all tariffs, barriers, barriers and subsidies. That would finally be called free market and fair trade. Hope they do it. We're ready, but they won't. So, Aww. I guess my question is, in the, er- er- in the era of Donald Trump, can the concept of free trade survive at all? I mean, Juliet, let's look at the background to the row because this has been rumbling on. This trade thing has been rumbling on forever. It has been rumbling on forever. But what impressed me about Mr. Trump's latest missive is that it wasn't written in capital letters. I think we need to stress that. But <laughs> That's I mean, for the Europeans. For the Europeans, the Europeans, yeah, the Europeans get it. The Iranians don't. Of course, we work this one out. I mean, look, it, it is. It, the, 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 you're always going to get these these issues which, which come up. But let's let's be clear about this. It's gained resonance because Donald Trump does not like dealing with blocks. Okay, he's he's more of the bilateralist, and this is get into his mentality as a businessman. Okay, because as far as he's concerned, you know, you, you do your deals one to one. But the idea of actually having to negotiate with 28 states, soon to be 27, I hasten to add, but for the moment, 28 states. And what he's done, he's actually been, well, he's he's been quite devious because he's, he, 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 he loves Brexit. But why does he like Brexit? He likes Brexit because like him, it's disruptive. You throw a grenade in there and hopefully if Britain leaves, it's going to encourage all these other states to leave as well. And that means you break up the EU so you deal with states on a one-to-one basis. Another example of his deviousness is the fact that he actually said to the German car makers, look, come and do a deal with us. Even though the German car makers, they can't do a deal with America by themselves because they are bound with this with the, with the relationship with the 28. He also tried to tease out Emmanuel Macron, the French leader, by saying, look, come and do a deal. France should do a deal with the United States. Look, this whole business about um, about um, one side perhaps benefiting at the, at the expense of the other, it's, it's never really been an issue as such. It's been quietly discussed, I would imagine, between the Europeans and the Americans. But now it's got a venomous edge to it because, remember, Mr Trump is playing to the House. Yeah? It's, it's about the base. It's keeping them sweet and being seen to be the man who's doing something about this. But the problem is that it's beginning to hurt Talk to the farmers; they'll tell you all about that. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> but I think also the way that that, that um, the way that this morning's new tweet about free trade went out. I think this is part of the businessman bargaining, exactly, um, and the idea that there is actually some deal to be done here. Um, but what strikes me is the theatre of this mm. meeting. I mean, it's very hard for me to imagine two more different characters than Jean Claude Juncker, um, Luxembourg. Steeped in the whole Brussels um, culture, and very tactile um, as well, and Donald Trump. I mean, just the the, the 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 contrast between the pair of them couldn't be greater. And the idea of any meeting of minds there is very hard to mm. um, is, is very hard to bring about. So um, goodness knows what will happen. I'm, I'm not. I'm not very optimistic. I, I think they'll, they'll have very nice meals, very nice lunches and dinners, etc. I think we can, we, can, we can be clear about that. But I think also that um, Donald Trump does have, um, although you know, I agree he doesn't like dealing with multilateral organisations. Mm. Um, nonetheless, he has this sort of strange respect for the European Union and its trade strength, if nothing else. Mm. Um, because one of the things was last week when he was talking, he, he described the European Union as a foe. Yes. Um, and I took that actually in Trump language in the canon of Donald Trump, that this is actually a big compliment to the European Union and they should enjoy it. 
Whilst Mary. it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move on now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Georgina Godwin, also with Juliet Foster and Mary Tchaikovsky. Coming up next, we look at Russia and NATO and the organisation's ties with Sweden and Finland, which are angering the foreign minister. And... As we're all an all-women team today, of course, we'll be talking about fashion, but only as it pertains to politics. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot. We tuck into some northern Spanish grub and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. This is Midori House. I'm Georgina Godwin. Juliet Foster and Mary Dijewski are in the studio with me. Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, has said Russia will take response measures against NATO's increasing ties with Sweden and Finland. Moscow views the expansion of NATO with alarm, believing that it's a threat, an attempt to encircle Moscow and weaken its clout on the global stage. So uh, if if we come to you first, Mary, NATO is about defence and the new members that are geographically close to Russia have joined up because they're worried about the, the Kremlin's increasing aggression. I mean, it, it's, it's not a mystery. Yes, I mean, that, that's um, certainly the, um, the newest members of NATO are really close to Russia's borders, the, 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 the new members of the European Union and NATO. And then recently we've been talking about the Balkans. Um, so we've had Montenegro and Macedonia is next one in line. Um, but what we're talking about here, which is quite interesting, is Sweden and Finland, which have been, as it were, proud to maintain their neutrality and non-membership of NATO. And what we've been watching over the last really two, three years, probably since Russia's annexation of, uh, of Crimea and the worries on NATO's eastern front, um, we've seen much greater cooperation and cohesion between those two neutral countries and NATO to the point where there's actually been talk of maybe Finland, maybe Sweden, maybe both actually joining NATO. Now, I don't think that's actually going to happen because I think what they've got at the moment is um, almost the perfect arrangement. Um, in a way, it's a bit like um, Norway's position vis-a-vis the European Union, um, that they're sort of outside um, for the point of their own domestic politics and their own sort of comfort. Um, and yet they can be, they can cooperate and they can be assets to NATO and they hold joint exercises. There were some um, quite big joint Nordic exercises earlier this summer. Um, so they do that. But I think when you look at the opinion polls, if you were going to ask 
either Sweden or Finland, um, whether there would be public support for joining NATO and abandoning their neutrality, I think the answer would be quite a definite no, even in current circumstances. Mm. Uh, and uh, Juliet, when, when the foreign minister, when Shoigu talks about response measures, what does he mean? Because surely that's not military. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. What sort of response would they take? I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be military, but you see, if let, let's say for argument's sake, in the most extreme instance that uh, Finland and Sweden decided, yes, we do want to join NATO, and um, they and uh, they went through the, the motions of this. Um, if 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 the Russians did decide, okay, we're going to get physical here. Remember that the the key article in NATO: an attack on one is attack against all. So whilst we could perhaps rely on on Europe to to rise to the aid of Finland and Sweden, where would that leave the United States, given the big love in? between the President of the United States and, of course, the leader of Russia. I mean, look, that is an extreme example. But um, if anything, let's turn things around. That um, the relationship between Finland and Sweden and NATO, it's it's not new. They have always had this relationship where they've taken part in military exercises. And in return, you've had NATO getting unrestricted access to Finnish and Swedish airspace, etc. But given that this this agreement has existed for some time. Why is it now that the Russians are drawing attention to mm. it? Do, do they feel perhaps emboldened because of what happened at that NATO conference between Mr. Trump and the other members of the alliance? Also, Mr. Trump's own uh, quotes about Montenegro, that they're very aggressive people. And of course, America isn't really, well, America wouldn't, wouldn't go go to war with Montenegro, given its size. So, I, I wonder why why now? What's what's I, in the timing? I, th- I think that's an in, that that's an entirely valid question. I would almost turn it on its head um, and say that. Um, why I think that um, Sergei Shoigu has said anything about this is, I would suggest, um, because NATO itself feeling a bit beleaguered, not entirely sure of the loyalty of mm. the American president, mm. wants to try and emphasise how cohesive it is, um, how much of a future it has, um, how it's really bigger than the sum of its parts, and it could actually um, count on people beyond its its formal borders. So I think there may be a bit of um, NATO, as it were, singing its own praises and mm. putting itself out there to show um, what a future it's God. Mm. Now, I know that Juliet is longing to get back to Trump. So, uh, I, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I am wearing Jacquet mousse. Mary is elegantly accessorised with Dior. And Julia is sporting Emily and Finn. None of us, I see, are wearing anything designed by Ivanka Trump. And it seems few other people are either. So, Donald Trump's daughter, she's a senior advisor to the president, has announced that she'll be closing down her fashion brand, citing the fact that she'd like to remain in Washington indefinitely, which may be true, but the continued survival of the brand is not helped by the falling sales figures. So what do we know about this label, Juliet? Well, what I can tell you is that my sister did buy an Ivanka Trump belt (laughs) and she dissected it because there were bits of it that she liked and bits of it that she didn't like. She has she's reinvented it. I I don't know what it is, but I mean, if I see you next week, I'll I'll tell you. (laughs) um, I mean, look, I'm not a fashionista, so I don't really know much about her brand, if I have to judge it in terms of how she physically looks, she looks very attractive, the way that she dresses, etc. But look, 
it's very disingenuous of her to say, actually, I'm putting public duty ahead of my business life. The bottom line is that she couldn't run the two things because there was a conflict of interest. And don't you think it's a little bit dodgy that when Xi Jinping came to the United States of America, one of the the byproducts of that meeting was that um, Ivanka gets a deal or some sort of a, a commission or whatever it is with the chi- with the Chinese, but she does she she gets something which benefits her business. Mm. Okay, I mean I think and, she's been very careful to 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 put limits in in between. Although a lot of her clothing was made in China. Yes, well, I think that's I mean that that's really two conflicts of interest because yeah. the first conflict of interest was that she was. Actually Actually, although she passed the business on to somebody else to manage while she was in the White House, it was seen very much as a temporary arrangement and um, that maybe she wasn't quite as hands-off as it looked. Now, we, do, we, we don't know that. But the association, the problem was that it was still there. Mm. Um, but the second problem was that the Ivanka label um, actually relied on all <laughs> sorts of cheap labour, all sorts of uh, over the world, um, in including in particular China, um, which is now the subject of um, a possible trade war with the United States with her father in the White House. Um, and cheap labour, um, mm. undercutting American labour, was a big cause of Donald Trump's during mm. the campaign. Absolutely. He promised to bring jobs back to the United States. Um, so there were these two conflicts of interest, which I think really made the whole thing untenable. Um, I mean, you can only say that... Um, it's probably a good thing it took her only 18 months rather than three and a half years to realise this. Mm. Although having said that, it was pretty obvious anyway from the moment that Mr Trump got his foot, his foot, his feet under the table that um, you know this this really wasn't going to work yeah. in terms of his daughter's business life because she's obviously a very active player. I mean, she is his favourite child and um, we know that she does have some influence over him and also as well, I suppose, a good thing about it is that it will deny Kellyanne Conway an excuse to promote uh, to promote her goods <laughs> during po- during. Yeah, and of course it's been boycotted by shoppers and it's now been dropped by some major stockists. Um, I'm afraid that that's all we have time for today. Uh, and uh, so thank you very much thank to you. Juliet Foster and Mary Tchaikovsky. Uh, uh, today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It was researched by Paula Schutze and Julia Webster. Our studio manager was David Stevens. There's more music coming up next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs and more of the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. I'll be back on The Globalist with you first thing tomorrow morning. And Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.